3: Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship SOFA, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. in transmissions. I'm found. i rockets. them to the moon.
4: This is the Starship Sova, Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 476. It just keeps on getting bigger and bigger. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in day show. First up is the main fiction, The World of Jew" by Julian Mortimer Smith. Then we have our very own Miss Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back, a genre history for March. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it when I say it's coming up, guess what's coming up first? A little chit-chat. Yeah, we're on now, the Kickstarter. We're down to hours. Hour 69. Hey, Vicar. <laughs> I didn't get up. i have been on night shift. And I noticed it was on hour 69. I thought, I've got to use that gag. Oh, was a cheap shot, but come on, man. Hour 69. We haven't got days now. It's... On the Kickstarter, it starts counting down in hours, man. And it's just like, honestly, I know I'd, Kickstarter's been around for a while and that, but this kind of sh- relentless shunt to the edge of the cliff, do you know what I mean? It's like bloody getting old, do you know? So please, get it in there. Get your pledge in there. Get a copy of everyone, Worlds Without Walls. It's guess how much it's up to now, <laughs> Eight thousand seven hundred and thirteen pound man on our sixty nine. How cool is that? My theory is, if we can, we want to scrape over the nine thousand and then I put to the next, the actual next stretch goal, which is pay the writers. That would be the thing. But guess what? On the eight thousand one, right? We got Samuel Delaney. We kind of rode past. You know what I mean? You sit and watch. Honestly, I mean, I'm. I'm going to chat with someone. Alex, who's a, a writer who actually had on there, Alex Schwartzman, we're going to have a chat next week about, you know, just the ins and outs of it. And, you know, he's got one going on as well at the moment. And I just thought, wow, man, it's, you, it's, oh, man, it's so stressful, man. This, I'm not joking as well. This is, I don't know if you. I got this decanter for last Christmas and I filled it up. Filling it with Jack Daniels Honey Whiskey. That, oh, that's lovely stuff, that mind isn't it? That's gone. That's a weird. Next. So please put put a pledge on. Get over that 9,000 little line. And I'm hoping some kind one, because there's a big one in there. For to actually produce the horror on anthology. Or like a little mini anthology as well. So we'll see how we go. But please, honestly, get over that nine. And then that's it. And count it down with work. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm kind of online. I'm off for four days there now. So I'm just kind of hovering. You know, I'm always kind of on the edges, just keeping an eye out. So drop us an email, drop us a tweet. It'll be fantastic. So what can I say? I'll tell you what I can say as well, my dear. Big thank you to who, from the start, I didn't mention it. You know, I just wanted to kind of focus. But from the start, Robin has been there. Robin at ah, Robin and D. Robin Bradshaw and D. And Dee's going to be, these work comes later, but Robin has just been instrumental. She's the assistant editor on this Kickstarter novel anthology and instrumental in kind of getting it, you know, to where it is, basically, full stop. Do you know what I mean? It's just fantastic. So, ooh, get your pledges in, if you will. That would be very nice. Thank you very much. So, we'll get on to that some, some science fiction stories there. The World of Jew by Julian Mortimer Smith, originally published in Pulp Literature. Julian Mortimer Smith has published more than a dozen stories in some of the world's top speculative fiction magazines including Ashimov's Terraform and Daily Science Fiction. One of his stories headshot appeared in the best American science fiction and fantasy twenty sixteen anthology. He has also written non fiction articles about subjects such as Shark Harbor UFO incident and I'm gonna to have to Google that one and the North America Conquers Championship. Julian lives in a small lobstering town on the southwest of Nova Scotia. You can find out more about Julian at com. This story is narrated by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins was born in California and grew up in around the western US. He currently resides in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, where he works as a voice artist, primarily focused on audiobooks, He is probably best known for being the voice of Glenn and Tyler's series of audiobooks written by J.B. Sanders. If you grew up in the Denver area in March, if you you grew up, it's going to be an excited man. If you're around in the Denver area in March, you can find him on stage with Magic Moments, a non-profit theatre group that brings theatre professionals and people with special needs together. Oh man, right, right, man, we go you together to create an original show every year. You can hire Brian to narrate your next audiobook at thevoicesinmyhead.com There you go. So
0: the Starship Sova is very proud present The World of Dew Written by Julian Mortimer Smith. Read for you by Brian Rollins This world of dew is a world of dew. And yet, and yet, Kobayashi Issa, 1763-1827 to 1827. I never scan the ship before blast-off. I just buckle in and ignite. It's like striking a match. My ship fizzles noisily through Juntavo's atmosphere and then settles into a nice steady burn that consumes mass until there's almost nothing left. That's where I live. That tiny splinter between your fingernails. That fragment. That almost nothing. You would never know I was carrying the exportable goods of an entire world with me. But that's what all those expensive pseudo-dimensions tucked away in back are for. When the match burns out, that's it. My fuel is spent and I'm barely out of the system. But I've got all the momentum I need. I can ride that stupendous wave of kinetic energy all the way to Aragara. I'm going well over light speed now, thanks to the zero space ram affixed to the prow, and there's nothing to slow me down out here in the almighty night. Only once I'm beyond the intercept threshold of whatever customs officers and law enforcement agencies exist on the planet I've left behind, do I scan the ship, pinpoint the rogue heat signature, the carbon dioxide source that shouldn't be there, a blue blip on my monitor a ghost in the darkness hold g8 a stowaway there's often a stowaway the brotherhood couldn't function without them we were all stowaways or castaways or runaways at one point so i go down to the cargo decks with a paralysis pistol and a crowbar my computer tells me which crate is breathing whispers it right in my ear so as not to alert whoever's in there it's a big crate that's supposed to be full of electronic goods Lots of packing and shielding. Easy as pie to chuck out some of that junk and make a nice comfy nest for yourself. To become invisible to customs and security. But no one's invisible aboard my ship. I crack it open and point my pistol. Pretend to be a mean old space cowboy. But there's no need. He's curled up and out cold. Sleeping like a baby. Must have taken some sedatives. Skip the boredom and fear of the weight. Smart kid. He's barely more than that, old enough to be my grandson. Actually, my grandson died of old age millennia ago, but you know what I mean. He's maybe 18, shaved head, lean, delicate features that will fill out as he ages, but that currently make him look fragile and cute and desperate. A tracksuit and a rucksack that looked military. Maybe a deserter then. I can sympathize, old hippie that I am. I've had a few deserters from various military and paramilitary and quasi-military outfits over the years. They tend to be good workers but bad company. Usually they ditch after a few runs anyway. I manhandle the kid onto one of the light-duty stevedores and take him up to habitation. I check him over with the diagnostic, he's fit as a horse, and leave him snoozing on a bunk with a tray of breakfast on the nightstand. He can thank me later. The Doctrine Manual of the Intergalactic Brotherhood of Relativity Freighters states that everyone who comes to us must be given the chance to join up, stowaways included. The past doesn't matter. Water under the bridge, bygones be bygones, and time heals all, etc. By supper time, the first day out of port, whatever prison sentences they faced are long since completed, whatever crimes they committed are ancient history, Whatever debts they might have left behind have been made negligible by inflation. What matters is who they are now. The Brotherhood is all about clean slates, fresh starts, and second chances. The present is all. You'd be surprised how many bad apples turn good in the Brotherhood get their crunch back, as I like to say. We've become something like a religion, and you can sort of see why. The name fits for a start like an order of monks or something. And then there's the bit about being absolved of all your sins. Your sins grow old, wither away, and die. But you stay young thanks to the relativistic effects of FTL travel. And, like a religion, we tend to attract the downtrodden, the desperate, and the just plain crazy. People who want to leave their lives behind. People who want to disappear. People who are legally prohibited from entering a spaceport. And that's why I never scan our ship before blastoff. Lack security is our recruiting strategy. Morning, sleepyhead, I say, barging in with a cup of tea and some biscuits. Welcome aboard the RF Wonderlust. You made it. Congratulations. I speak to him in freight tongue, but my computer knows how to translate into this kid's dialect. Your brotherhood? He asks. His voice is dry and croaky, probably dehydrated from his long sleep. He's sitting on his bunk, clutching his rucksack in front of him like a shield. Yes, I'm Brotherhood, I tell him. You're safe here. Whoever you were running from has forgotten about you by now. It's been a decade already from their frame of reference. And no, I don't want to know who they were or what you did. You're in the Brotherhood now. The present is all that matters. It was what they told me back when I was in his position. It made me feel better at the time. They're always running away from something. I just hope it's not a good home or a broken heart or a pregnant girlfriend. Those ones always end up regretting it, and I can't stand whiners. The present is all that matters, he repeats after me as if he understands, but you don't really get to understand until you've lived with it for a while, until you get used to the fact that everyone you have ever met will be dead by supper time. He's nervous and suspicious of me, but he takes the tea and gulps it down, wincing at its bitterness. I bought that on Arknor Prime. Supposed to be very good for you. The Junga beasts eat that plant when they get sick. It heals them, apparently. How far is that from my... From Jantavo, he asks. Oh, just a little stroll, about seventy clicks. light years. I nod. Then he asks me something that stowaways never ask. Did you like Jantavo? He says it with timid pride, like it was a meal he had cooked for me. Stowaways are always hopelessly self-absorbed, for the first few days at least, bursting with excitement and relief and melancholy. So his question catches me off guard. It's so mundane, like he's a tour guide operator. I used to take tours of all the planets I visited, but I quickly got bored of that. There are only so many wonders of the galaxy you can take. These days I spend most of my shore time in the bar. I'm suddenly embarrassed by that, by the disarming earnestness of this kid's question. I didn't really see much of it, I admit. Just another delivery to me. I wasn't there long. He nods. Me neither, he says. I'm startled by this response. Young people are so rarely conscious of their youth. By the ship's clock, it's three weeks from Jantavu to Aragara. About two days before we hit the system... We send a message to the local Brotherhood offices announcing our arrival. We're only now dropping back down to sublight speeds, so that's the longest lead time we can give them. Send the message any sooner and we outrun it, arrive before it does. But two days is enough. It gives them a good six months of dilated time to prepare. My stowaway's name is John, and I've grown to like him over the last three weeks. I hope he'll stay on. God knows I could use the help. Just a month ago, I had a crew of a half a dozen, but they all bailed on Margareta Alpha to start a commune on the idyllic southern continent, so I've been on my own for the last few runs. I can run this freighter solo, but it's always good to have at least one or two other people around to lighten the load. John's a nice, quiet kid. Thoughtful and thorough. It's no wonder he wasn't cut out for the army. Armies are all the same. You've got to be gung-ho and hoo-wah and move with a sense of urgency. You can't go around thinking about things all the time, and John seems to spend all his time going around thinking about things, which makes him extremely good at stevedore optimization programming. He takes to the interface like an old pro, organizing the cargo into ever more efficient configurations that will save us days of unloading time once we land. He's curious, full of questions, but also humble and self-effacing, I like that mix. He asks me a lot of things I can't answer, like why the two-day, six-month thing happens, or how the pseudo-dimensions work. He also asks me some things I can't answer, but won't, like why I joined the Brotherhood. But for the most part, I answer his questions as best I can, and I have to admit, it's good to chat with another human being again after a month with only the computer for company. I gave him a brief history of the Brotherhood, the standard spiel we formed to give some modicum of security and continuity to inter-system freight crews, help them deal with relativity. Brotherhood institutional culture is engineered to be utterly robust. You never know what society will be like when you arrive at your destination, but you know the Brotherhood will be there for you. The local offices do all the actual buying and selling, thank God. They auction our cargo off to governments and industry, use the proceeds to fill our holds with local goods, and send us on our way. But maybe the Brotherhood's most important function is running the Union Bars. Every spaceport in the inhabited universe has one, so no matter what kind of teetotally nutcase is in charge when you arrive, you know at least you'll be able to get a decent drink. You take absolutely anyone as crew? John asks. Yes. I patted the paralysis pistol at my waist. This is just for show. The ship itself has excellent countermeasures. We get more than our fair share of maniacs, but you have to put a lot of effort into getting into trouble around here. The other thing I like about John is that he doesn't talk about himself much. Usually by the end of the first week they've spilled it all. Why they're here, what they're running from, what they did, their hopes and fears and dreams. Despite my insistence that I don't want to hear it. John's not like that. He's polite and shy and keeps to himself mostly, which makes him seem full of potential, undamaged somehow. Not like the cynical outcasts I'm usually stuck with. It's ironic, I guess, but that makes me curious about him. We cook together. I send a stevedore to the cargo hold and we break open a few crates of Juntavan produce. He whips up a delicious stew. I help him chop onions and peel the globular bishop fruit that were a staple of his region. He whistles while he cooks, a slow, halting melody that I wouldn't quite describe as tuneless, but almost. I haven't bothered to cook since Persa died. I've been eating the blandly perfect stuff the ship spits out instead. I always told Persa I hated it, but really it was just innocuous. After her death, all I wanted was innocuous. John is down-to-earth and empty of the kind of drama that so many rejects are so full of, and that makes me see my own aversion to cooking as a silly, dramatic gesture. So I tuck into Bishop Fruit's stew, and I tell him about the local cuisines on the various planets I've visited. The sweet curries on Orbis Four, The sapphire pancakes on Pentafoo. The delicate towers of crystallized sap on Krantak One. John nods and grins, I'd like to try that someday. The last few months, alone on this freighter, I've felt a steadily rising anxiety. A sense that things are approaching an end somehow. As if I've had time's valves open too wide for too long, and the well is about to run dry. John's youth and shy optimism ease that anxiety. Or, to put it another way, I'm a lonely old fool and I enjoy having young people around. Last time I was on Aragara, it was in a state of violent anarchy. Now, a few millennia later, it's a peaceful techno-utopia, far more advanced than Gentavo was when we left. The Aragarans aren't going to get that indistinguishable from magic tech boost that we bring to some planets, but nevertheless, they're pleased as punch that we're here. They haven't had freight from Gentavu in over 600 years, so the universities and museums are drooling over the cultural and artistic goods packed away in holds A through D. Imagine it. Six centuries of art, music, literature, drama, television, and film to catch up on. Not to mention the hollow shows, mind dances, martial circuses, etch plays, star games, and all the other art forms that just never developed in their space-time shard. It takes just over a week to unload, our army of stevedores interfacing with their local Brotherhood counterparts, who in turn take the crates to a vast transit terminal, where sleek Lev trains wait to transport the Jantavan exports to the four corners of the world. Sometimes it's airplanes or ships waiting for our freight, sometimes it's zeppelins or matter displacers or beasts of burden. Sometimes cargo colts form around brotherhood offices. Sometimes the locals don't want to play ball and the freight languishes in the brotherhood's infinite warehouses for centuries. But those are all problems for the local office to deal with. The brotherhood is nothing if not patient. But us freight runners, we're a different breed from the rank and file. We take whatever they can give us, fuel up, and ignite. Managing the stevedores is kind of fun, satisfying like Tetris on an epic scale. The planet-sized mess of the cargo holds slowly becomes a vast, clean emptiness. I can't help but think of the ship as a living thing, emptying its lungs of all that stale volume before sucking in fresh, life given freight to sustain it on its next long swim through vacuum. John's a good worker, and we're done ahead of schedule. When I give him shore leave, he explores Contado Freeport, Aragara's space trade hub. But I stay and drink at the Union Bar. It's too easy to have fun in utopian cultures. There's too much temptation to stay, and I made my decision long ago that I would never stay anywhere ever again. So I drink with freight runners from every corner of the universe and every era you care to name. We speak to one another in freight tongue, a simple and exceptionally stable language, It's full of redundancies and evidentials and meta-linguistic tags that stop it from evolving. When you first learn it, it's endlessly frustrating. Freight Tongue was never meant to be spoken. It was designed by Brotherhood computers to act as a kind of linguistic middleman. I say something in my mother tongue, which my ship's software knows how to translate into freight tongue. Then your software knows how to go from freight tongue to your mother tongue. That's the idea, at least. In practice, in union bars all across the universe, freight runners speak freight tongue directly. We don't so much skip the middleman as become him. Living languages are terribly mercurial, changing beyond recognition in the blink of an eye. In all likelihood, each of us is the sole surviving speaker of his or her mother tongue, so why bother with it? At the union bar, we're all exiles, all homesick and free, which is how we like it. Nobody asks you where or when you're from. There's a reassuring familiarity about the sports and news that play on the wall-mounted TVs at every Brotherhood bar throughout the galaxy. Television is always the same. Different technologies, of course, but always, when you get down to it, television, pure and simple. Momentous events, world-altering discoveries, salacious celebrity gossip, spectacular saves and goals and fouls. All reassuringly squared away in a corner, neatly packaged in a box, predigested, reminding you that serious people are concerning themselves with important things, giving you license to drink and wallow in self-absorption, to not pay attention. And tomorrow, to leave it all behind without guilt. The night before blast-off, I sit playing dice with a family of runners. You often see families running freight together, four or five generations on the same ship. It's a good way to do it, I suppose, as long as you're careful to avoid inbreeding. They bicker and squabble and laugh over the rules of the game and try to teach me secret techniques and ways to cheat. But I'm preoccupied. I miss Persa, as I tend to when I drink. I'm worried about loneliness, worried I'm becoming a bit strange after so long on my own, worried I'm too old to keep going. And I worry about John. I got used to having him around over the last few weeks and I'm worried he won't come back. That he'll stay on Aragara. Utopias are notorious for crew defection. As a native Juntabin, he'll easily find work giving the locals the skinny on all these exotic products flooding their planet. But then I see something different on the TV screen. Something the TV is not there for. It's something that shakes me up. Something I can't ignore. I get to my feet and tell my computer to translate the broadcast and my ears are full of talk, of conspiracies, and aliens, and violence. My tablemates protest that we're in the middle of a round, but I ignore them. There's no disease on Aragara, no crime. Nobody dies of anything but old age here. There hasn't been an unnatural death in centuries, so they're all in a tizzy over this. It's John. No obvious marks on him, but obviously dead. They've already put two and two together and linked him with the recent Relativity Freighter landing. I hear my own name more than once. It's the one proper noun my computer never seems to recognize, and it sounds like Jushin Jack Cobbs from the mouth of the newscaster, but I know they're talking about me. They call the Brotherhood a shadowy organization that has resisted assimilation into the enlightened all-state and they speculate on why we might have wanted this man dead. The local Brotherhood media liaison is on hand to give his official no comment, which the Aragarans misinterpret as tacit admission of guilt. The truth is, the only way Brotherhood locals maintain their autonomy and stability is through scrupulous disinterest in planetary affairs. Everyone dies. We in this bar, more than anyone, know what that means. If John had stayed on Aragara, he'd have died of old age tomorrow. I've had crew members murdered before. I've had crew members die aboard my ship. Dying people often want to escape their lives, or they believe that FTL travel will prolong their final days, so they join up. You'll outlive your great-grandchildren, the brotherhood, but you can't outrun death. And yet, and yet... John was healthy and young and earnest, and his death gets to me. My guess is that whatever military outfit he was running from outfitted him with some sort of anti-desertion slash anti-capture mechanism, like on the shopping trolleys at Brotherhood Commissaries. If you take them too far from the store, the wheels lock up. That old philosophy makes me angry, willfully destroying something good and useful just because you can't possess it yourself. I spend the rest of the night in the bar, sober now, drinking tea, unable to sleep, counting down the minutes to blast off. By breakfast time tomorrow, John's death will be ancient history. Its mystery will have been solved or not. His grave will be mossy, his plot overgrown. If they even bury their dead on Aragara. Don't know and don't care. I just want to get out of here. In the morning, I will leave this world and all that has happened will evaporate like morning dew under the hot sun of my ship's engines. The past will become fragile and trivial Vanishing along with Aragara's white giant, its bright rays unable to keep up. And the present will expand and fill the ship, driving out the ghosts. I wake up on one of the Brotherhood's guest cots, still fully dressed. I don't remember going to bed. I had planned to stay up until Blastoff, but I must have changed my mind as sleep became increasingly seductive. Now I'm late. I stumble into the Spartan little bathroom and splash water on my face, trying to speed the process of waking. Only then do I remember John and what happened to him. No time to think about that now. I quick march down the corridors of the nondescript residential unit until I find some Brotherhood employees who give me directions to launch control. There's a woman waiting for me at the launch pad gate, some expensive-looking luggage at her side, a bright smile on her face. Captain Jacobs? She says, as she sees me approaching and shakes my hand. My name's Kinia Lantern. I'm here to join your crew. I stare at her a moment, blinking stupidly. She's young and fresh-faced, and she's pretty, which makes me suspicious. Do you know what that means? I ask. Of course, she says, a little indignantly. Then why? I ask. My own question surprises me. I never ask. I thought... Never mind, we're late. Get on board and keep out of my way. We launch in under five. Aye, aye, Captain. She salutes and grins cheekily, the defense against my rudeness. You're running awfully late, whines launch control into my ear as we sprint up the boarding ramp. You want us to delay until the next window? No, I say emphatically. I'm leaving, now. I stuff Kenya into a chair and tell her to strap in. Then I cycle the computer through a rough approximation of a launch procedure, skipping all the redundant steps and some of the safety checks. A brief moment to catch my breath and we're away, gaining altitude with stomach-turning swiftness, blazing into space. An hour later, I've showered and shaved, emptied my bladder and combed my hair, and John is ancient history. I emerge from my quarters to apologize to Kenya. I explain things as honestly and fully as I can. I tell her about John, feeling I owe her that much. I'm usually more welcoming, I tell her. Back home, they were all saying you guys did it, she says. So you didn't? No, he was a soldier, I think. Some sort of delayed execution for desertion. That's terrible, says Kenya, softly. I shake my head and laugh a little. You'd think I'd be used to it. He was your friend, she says. Not really, we only knew each other a few weeks. I hardly knew a thing about him, and yet, I don't know. You liked him, she says. Yes, he was your friend, she says, again firmly. And something about the way she says it makes me believe that she knows it to be true. Kenya doesn't spill. Her motivations are opaque to me. I rarely pick up recruits on utopian worlds, but when I do, it's usually boredom that drives them to leave, a facile desire for adventure, a naive romanticization of hardship and struggle. Usually, they're kicking and screaming to go back within a week. As a rule, I work utopian kids hard. Might as well get used to the harsh realities of the universe, kiddo, because you're out in it now, at the mercy of the almighty knight, and this ship ain't half as bad as most of what's out there. I send Kenya to trudge around the holds and check on the anomalous crates and cargo that the computer doesn't recognize. That stuff all has to be checked against the billion-page manifest. There are powerful search mechanisms, of course, but it's still tedious as hell. She does the work competently and without complaint. She doesn't seem to mind. I keep to myself mostly and spend my time in exhausting depression. But we meet up for meals and I find myself telling her about Persa. I'm embarrassed to find myself fishing for sympathy from a pretty young woman, but that doesn't stop me. She joined up his crew. She was funny. I mean, she made me laugh. But she was also funny in the other way, too. Peculiar. I couldn't figure out why someone like her would leave her home. She came from a good family. She had grown-up children like me. She was from a decent, late industrial world. I guess I'm drawn to people I can't figure out. She must have told you, though, eventually, says Kenya. No, never. At first, it was a point of pride, I think. I didn't tell her either. We were both stubborn. Later, there was some superstition about it. I didn't want to spoil the mystery, thinking that was what we liked about one another. Later still, when I would have told her anything, it just didn't matter anymore. It was enough to just be with her every day. Eighteen years we were together, and I never knew what she was running from. John didn't tell you either, Kenya says. I'm shocked, and for a brief moment, I find myself angry that she has said it. It's such a bland and obvious explanation for my current melancholy that I feel stupid for having fallen victim to it, for not having seen it myself. John reminded me of persona, or more likely of myself, when I met her. You haven't told me either, I point out. This is meant as an objection to her theory, but I blush when I realize it sounds like a come on. And Durham is in the middle of a full-fledged world war when we arrive. A couple of surface-to-air missiles are flung at us as we descend, but they're nothing the ship's countermeasures can't handle. The local rep apologizes when we land on behalf of the warring factions, those damned custodians of truth can't tell a relativity freighter from a bomber, he laughs, speaking in rough and rapid freight tongue. I'm telling you, they were quaking in their boots when they realized their mistake. Thought we would refuse them trade privileges. I even strung the ambassador along for a bit. <laughs> the poor bastard. You should have seen the look on his face. Old-fashioned trench warfare is the order of the day on Andurum. Ridiculously bloody and bloody ridiculous. Hundreds of millions have died since it began, and for what? To push the front a few miles in one direction or the other? To consume the planet's already strained natural resources at an insane rate? To render vast segments of the population desperate and homeless and hopeless? What's going to happen after we unload? Can you ask? Our first night, planet side. We're watching the news on vacuum tube televisions in the bar. It's all propaganda, of course. But the bloodshed is so pervasive that even the cheery, martial music and joyful announcements of major victories can't quite hide the despair. You can see it in the eyes of the newscasters in their utterly unconvincing optimism. After we unload, we're going to get the hell out of here, I tell Kenya, knowing that's not what she means. This is the kind of delivery I feel most conflicted about. We're the first freighter to have visited the planet in decades— Our cargo is going to revolutionize warfare overnight. The Aragurans didn't have a military, but that's irrelevant. The most superficial glance at our manifest reveals anti-grav skimmers, portable fission reactors, semi-sentient drone bots, cloaking devices, neural boosters, neural inhibitors, customizable hallucinogens, hyper-nutrients. In the best of all possible worlds, the tech boost would render the causes of the conflict moot and bring peace and prosperity to all. But it is far more likely to result in a swift and brutal genocide, conducted by whoever is shrewd enough or lucky enough to purchase those technologies most amenable to weaponization. Who decides who gets our stuff? Kenya asks. It occurs to me that this must be hard for her to bear, although she doesn't show it. The best her planet has to offer, the pride of Aragaran culture is given over to genocidal maniacs to do with as they please. Market forces, I tell her. It must be tough for the local governments, too. They're already resource-starved, their economies given over almost exclusively to food and weapons, products that are consumed as fast as they are produced. They haven't got much to trade, and yet they can't risk missing the miracle tech that might be lying in our holds. They can't risk their enemies landing the jackpot, so they'll pay. We'll take a cargo of weapons and food desperately needed at the front to Nactat, 40 light years away. The windows of the bar overlook the Brotherhood's airstrip. Heavy cargo planes land every two or three minutes, delivering payment from each of the warring factions. A truce reigns on Brotherhood's soil, the only truly neutral ground on the planet. Further off, we can see the sprawling refugee camp that has sprung up just outside the perimeter fences. A sea of frightened, displaced people who believe that proximity to the Brotherhood will keep them safe. Kenya stares out at the camp wide-eyed. I watch her out of the corner of my eye. I won't take on any more crew here. Security is too tight. The Brotherhood can't take any chances on a world like Andurum. We would be overrun with refugees infiltrated by spies and saboteurs. Those who try to cross the perimeter are shot on sight. So it'll just be me and Kenya for another three weeks. It's not until all the work is done and we're 12 hours from blastoff that Kenya's body is found. I'm up late putting the final touches on launch prep, trying to get it over with before bed because I hate having to do it in the morning. A senior security officer requests entry onto my ship, wanting to talk to me in person. She's a stern, middle-aged woman, her hair done up in a severe bun, her uniform neatly pressed. Captain Jacobs? she asks. I am over Sergeant Martins, Chief of Security. I have some upsetting news to deliver. Your companion, Miss Lantern, has been found dead. She pauses, looking me in the eyes with practiced gravitas and patience. She's done this before. How is all I can manage. We are hoping to ask you the same thing, Captain, she says. There were no external wounds on her body. She will be taken for an autopsy in the infirmary. Do you know of any reason she might have suicide? I don't know, I tell her. It's possible. I understand she came from a very peaceful world, Sergeant Martin says. Perhaps the shock of seeing war for the first time. I nod. "'acknowledging the possibility. "'She didn't seem that way, Sergeant. "'She nods as well, and we sit in silence for a while. "'There's something else, Captain,' she adds, "'once a decent amount of time has passed. "'She was found near a Baroka Dominion cargo plane. "'That in itself is strange. "'We have an interdiction perimeter around the landing strip and loading base. "'She did not have access to that area.' We do not believe she could have circumvented our security without the aid of off-world technology. Did she ever have unsupervised access to your cargo? Of course she did, I shrug. She was crew, and besides, she came with her own luggage. She was a walk-on. I see. Sergeant Merton's looks displeased. Then she says what she has come to say. That's not all, Captain. The pilot of the cargo plane has vanished. Vanished, I repeat dumbly. We don't know how. We have verbatim visual record devices installed around the runway. We have heat signature scanners and motion detectors. We ether image all the planes coming in and out. Again, we suspect that off-world technology facilitated this disappearing act. It takes me a while to catch her drift. You think that Kenya managed to get a cloaking device or whatever to this pilot, and then he killed her? It doesn't make sense to me either, Captain. But if she managed to smuggle trade goods out of the compound, it could be awkward for us. The Brotherhood's position in this war is extremely delicate. If Aragaran Tech falls into the wrong hands, it could jeopardize our neutrality. I frown at her and shake my head. Why would she? We don't know. After Sergeant Martins has left, I'm lying in my bunk, drenched in a numb insomnia. Another possibility occurs to me. And the longer I think about it, the more certain I am that Sergeant Martin's is wrong, that Kenya's murderer is close by and lying in wait. I worry that Kenya's mysterious death will delay my launch, but the local bigwigs seem to want me gone, out of sight, out of mind and all that. So I launch on schedule, my holds full of war-forged goods, and another mystery death becomes ancient and irrelevant. Or it would, if not for the stowaway in fragile goods. My computer tells me he's stumbling around the hold in the dark, probably looking for a way up to habitation. I take the lift down, wearing my blindsight goggles, my pistol at my hip, feeling a bit of a badass. He hears my footsteps as I approach and yells into the darkness, I surrender, I'm unarmed. He's got his hands above his head and I zap him anyway and cart him off to the brig. When he can move and speak again, he begins to complain. I'm in my quarters reading a book, but he knows I'm listening over the ship's calm system. I don't deserve this. I just want it out of that fucking war. Why this cell? Why this pain? By the time I arrive, he's quiet again, sitting sullenly in his cot. By now, his muscles will have stopped aching. I push a food tray through the bars, and he grabs it with obvious relief. The poor guy's starving. Between mouthfuls, he mumbles a few words of thanks, then starts to complain again. "'Can you let me out, please, sir? My name's Frederick. I'm a good worker, you'll see. I don't like being trapped in a cage like this. Why did you kill her?' I say it loud enough to shut him up. He looks at me through the bars and raises an eyebrow. "'Who?' In response, I raise my pistol. A look of panic comes into his eyes. "'The girl? No, I don't know what happened.' She gave me the disguise and then fell to the ground. A heart attack, maybe. I don't know. I didn't have time to check if she was okay. You're lying, I tell him. I want the truth. Why? He asks. There's something different in his voice now. A spark of confidence. I thought the present is all that matters. I thought you accept anyone as crew. So he knows brotherhood doctrine. I lower my pistol slowly. He's right, of course. I should not be asking him these things, but I ask him anyway. Why did you kill her? He doesn't respond. He sits back down on his bunk and closes his eyes. I leave him there and go about my work, worried by my own worry. Two mysterious deaths in a row. It cannot be anything but coincidence. And yet, something nags at me, prevents me from sleeping. I flip on the PA system and listen in on my prisoner. Expecting silence or snores, I'm taken aback to hear a low, almost tuneless whistling. Tomorrow I will release him and put him to work. Nactad is a lush, underpopulated jungle world. It is a well-functioning anarchy and the populace has little use for what we have brought. War is an alien concept, as is famine. We unload, anyway, into the Brotherhood's pseudo-dimensional warehouses and fill our holds with heavy industrial goods and raw materials that an earlier freighter brought a few months ago. Equally unwanted goods. They'll need weapons sooner or later, I explained to Frederick. Everyone gets round to war eventually. Frederick vanishes into the wilderness a day before our departure. The Brotherhood facilities here have no security, and there's no one to stop him. But I'm joined by a walk-on, an old woman named Muriel. She always has a bitter scowl on her face, but she is kind and works hard, and she never tells me why she is joined. Muriel dies on Lorinian a month later. The doctors suspect a heart attack. Lorinian is a feudal industrial world where a small aristocracy control the vast majority of the wealth. They buy up our cargo as if it were nothing and sell us extravagant works of art, fine china pleasure drugs. A teenage boy smuggles himself onto the ship during loading. He was a servant to one of the noble houses. He disappears into the maze-like streets of Hral Megacity on Pelman Alpha two weeks later, only to be replaced by a young girl, a surprisingly articulate street urchin named Ramana. Each of them is remarkably talent, remarkably willing to work. Each has that quiet curiosity to which I am attracted, but I no longer have a desire to pursue friendship. I leave this succession of crewmates to their own devices and spend my time scanning through a 100 billion pages of local history, documents both physical and electronic, from all the planets I have ever visited. I used to collect histories and encyclopedias as souvenirs in my early days. I loved reading about different cultures, different ways of living and being and thinking, different ways a society could be structured. I stopped reading them before I stopped collecting them. Even now that I've stopped collecting, I still receive briefings from all the planets I visit, documents that the local Brotherhood reps have compiled, appraising me of the current social climate. I mostly use these briefings to make decisions about shore leave and other matters of security. But now I delve into the background reports and current events, the fluff and padding as I used to think of it, scanning for stories of alien contact. And at least I find what I'm looking for, a tourist guide to an infamous prison on the planet Kourine, a planet that Persa and I visited years ago. My current shipmate is in the mess, fixing herself some breakfast. I picked her up on Shashlitz, a stifling theocracy. She was a walk-on, but she came in secret, under cover of night. She wore the robes of a priestess of the highest order. But once we were away, she was all too happy to don the overalls of the Brotherhood and make herself useful. Leave that for now and follow me, I tell her. She comes without complaint. I take her all the way through habitation to embarkation. Unlocking the security doors with biometric passphrases. Where are we going? She asks more than once, but I do not answer. Finally, we reach the crew airlock, and I have to manually override a dozen safety mechanisms to get the interior door open. After you, I usher her into the chamber and lock the door behind her. She realizes what is happening before the massive door can close and seal completely but I have my pistol pointed at her by then, and she hesitates. Then it is too late. She is trapped between two massive vacuum carbon bulwarks. We can see each other's faces through the little window, but our voices have to be transmitted through the computer. Let's drop this charade, I say to her. She stares at me through six inches of plastic, her hands spread against the plate. I imagine that she's trying to work out if I'm bluffing or not. Why not the brig again? She says softly. This is safer. I trusted you, she says then. It seems an odd thing to say, and I laugh at her. I don't trust you. You killed them all. Everyone I've had on board since Juntavu. Since John, right? Maybe further back. I don't know how it works. They would all be dead by now anyway. Her voice sounds strange and metallic over the comm link. There's an echo in it that there wasn't before. This is different. How? she asks. Why do you care? And for a moment I'm stumped. Is it having a murderer as crew? That's nothing new to me. Over the years I've had a wide range of murderers on this ship. Some crazy, some just bad. Sometimes I was forced to throw them in the brig and ditch them at our next stop. But there were also those whom I befriended. There was a hitman from Kentish who stayed with me for dozens of runs. He was one of my best workers. So why is this different? I'm asking the questions here. I tell her feebly, feeling like a bad cliché. What are you? Tell me. She speaks a word that my computer does not know how to translate. Then she shrugs. We just call ourselves people. And what do others call you? I ask. What do humans call you? Different things, she says. I have spoken in many tongues in my day. Mind-eaters, parasites, doppelgangers, demons, possessors. The Carinis called you devourers, I tell her, and she nods in acknowledgement. Were you there? That was where our army was defeated. That was where the great starvation occurred. Yes, I was there. Only a few of my people escaped, but I was one of them. I look at her through the glass, and I see that she is scared. I try to see a parasitic alien behind the girl's eyes, but I cannot. The human brain is hardwired for face recognition. I cannot see her as anything but a frightened girl. The great starvation, I say, at last. The prison. The kurinis had to kill their own people to be rid of you. They had to watch their friends and loved ones die. No. Her eyes flashed with sudden anger. They watch my people die, my friends, my loved ones. They watch them starve to death. If we cannot feed, we suffer, and the suffering of my people is a most terrible thing. What about the suffering the Kourinis? I ask. I'm angry too now, inexplicably. The war on Kourine was ancient history even at the time of my visit, millions of years ago by their calendar. What about John's suffering? I add realizing that this is really what I mean. What about Kenyas and all the people you have fed on since coming aboard my ship? There is something you have to understand, she says. She regains her composure with a visible effort of will, raising her palms to the window in a conciliatory gesture. I have visited many, many worlds since my time on Corrine. I have made a study of suffering in humans and other creatures. I have studied biology and physiology, psychology and neurology, cognitive science and spiritual science. I have learned about these things from the most advanced civilizations, and I have learned different things from the most primitive. I have concluded that the suffering experienced by my people is far greater than anything a human is capable of experiencing, trillions of times greater. Bullshit, I tell her. I know it is hard to accept, but it is true. She speaks in a rush now, as if in a panic, as if taking a risk and wanting to get it over with. Human suffering is a complex and many-faceted thing. It involves nociception, nerve fibers, the limbic system, the cingulate cortex, the hypothalamus. It can be physical or it can be emotional. It has a cultural dimension, a spiritual dimension, an aesthetic dimension. It can seem agonizing or can carry pleasure with it. I know all this. I also know you have opioid receptors and endorphins that limit suffering, that you can lose consciousness when your suffering reaches a certain threshold. I have lived in many, many human bodies. I have felt pain with human nerves. I have felt torture and heartbreak. I have felt disease and I have felt grief. I know that your suffering can seem like the most important thing in the universe, but I also know that you are mistaken in thinking this. Human suffering is a faint and meager thing, a surface with no depth. But for my people, our suffering is different. It is far less subtle, far less complex than human suffering. It is blunt and vast and inconceivable. And we only suffer when we are hungry. She pauses, and again, I see fear in her eyes. And we can only die by starvation. She glances at the outer airlock door, and I imagine her floating in vacuum, her body slowly radiating heat, drifting inexorably toward the ambient temperature, a hair above absolute zero. And I imagine a conscious being trapped in that icy corpse, growing hungry. You eat the minds of your hosts, I say dumbly. I am horrified and fascinated, angry and curious. I don't know what to believe or what to feel. Eat is imprecise, she tells me. We are nourished by cognition. Some cultures describe us as syncretic personae. We build our own sentience from the sentience of others. But yes, if you like, we eat minds. We eat them and we excrete them. How many? How many people have you killed? Thousands, she says, and I hear something in her voice that I interpret as flippancy. I have to take a new host every few months. If not, the hunger begins. I have sustained myself over four hundred years. Only twice have I felt hunger. Just the beginnings, a shadow of what was to come. And both times it was enough. Enough for what? Enough to force me to do what was needed to sate my hunger. Things I am not proud of. I walk away and leave her there in the airlock. Before I switch off my calm link, I hear what sounds like a sob of frustration, quiet and human. I don't sleep that night. I lie on my bunk thinking about the creature in my airlock. From time to time, I switch the calm link back on and listen to her pleading with me for release. You can drop me off at the next world and I will go and leave you in peace. You can forget about me like you forget about all those you leave behind. I only stayed with you because you didn't seem to care. No, that's not exactly true. I stayed because I could travel from world to world, taking just one life at a time, never staying long enough to arouse suspicion, never risking imprisonment. But I believed that you accepted everyone, no matter what, and that made me... Click. Then later... Always having someone at my heels, never being trusted by anyone. I feel what my host feels. I feel the guilt and the sadness at leaving their family and friends. You must know what it is like. They do not suffer when I possess them. I take their suffering upon myself. It is not easy. I do not enjoy it. But the terror of hunger pushes me on. If I could die any other way... Click. Later still, a long silence. And in the midst of that silence, I am often lonely. I haven't eaten since breakfast, and I am growing hungry myself. I try to imagine that hunger being a trillion times more intense, and I find it impossible, a meaningless exercise. How to even quantify something as subjective as suffering. And then I imagine taking possession of human bodies and discarding them like sandwich wrappers. I imagine viewing all the suffering of humanity as a trivial, diaphanous thing. I imagine what it is like to kill an innocent person, because the alternative is unbearable. I find all that remarkably easy to imagine. I open a calm channel to the airlock again. The creature is silent now, perhaps asleep. Let me tell you about Persa, I say into the silence. She didn't die, not quite. She is long dead, but I was lying when I told you that she died. She left me. For eighteen years we traveled the stars together, and then one day she had had enough. She disappeared on shore leave and did not return to the ship for launch. She left a note, telling me not to come looking for her. Telling me to launch without her. Telling me she was sorry. It was a suicide note. Maybe she didn't mean it that way, but for me, that's what it was. From my frame of reference, she would be dead within days of leaving the planet. From hers, she had the rest of her life ahead of her. We had talked about stopping, about retiring together. But after that, I knew I could never stop. There is no response, and I do not know if the creature has heard me or not. I don't know why I've told her this. Later still, I hear a low whistling, and, at last, for the first time, I do not hear it as tuneless. Through a slow accumulation, it has become a melody, both ugly and beautiful. The next morning, I go to the airlock again. The girl is crouched in one corner. There is a pool of urine on the floor. She looks exhausted and I know she has not slept on that hard floor under those bright lights with the stink of piss endlessly circulating in the recycled air. She pulls herself to her feet stiffly when she sees me at the window and hobbles over and stares at me with tired, bloodshot eyes. I don't speak. I don't know why I have come. My nervous system is separate from that of my host, she says, the croak of thirst in her voice. "'But I still feel its thirst, its pain. "'If this host body dies, I will still be able to move its muscles, "'but I hate doing that. "'You have heard stories of zombies. "'We have always lived amongst you.' "'Why, Corrine? Why the invasion?' I ask. "'There is a long silence before she responds. "'We wanted to enslave a planet. "'We wanted to keep a breeding population enslaved "'so that we needed never go hungry again.' We were punished for our hubris. I turn away in disgust. It was wrong, she mumbles. We were defeated. It is better this way, the diaspora. Each of us alone taking our hosts suddenly and secretly. They do not suffer. They do not even know. John, I say to her. I've liked him a great deal. And Kenya. And the others, too. I like them. You like me? She smiles weakly. They were all me. I am made angry again by this bait and switch. I feel betrayed. Listen, she says. My personality is the sum of all the people I have inhabited. I remember what it is to be like them. My hosts die, but a part of each of them lives on in me. I kill them, yes, but I give them a kind of immortality as well. A stab of wild hope. Impossible, but also impossible to dismiss. The sense of familiarity about John. The way I felt less anxious about him. His quiet, easy smile. His melancholy. I blurted out, knowing it is not true. Persa. You were once Persa. You took her from me. You wrote that note, not her. A look of worry crosses the girl's face, then a look of sadness, of pity. No she says softly, not meeting my eyes. Something collapses inside me, a shred of hope and dread calving from my heart. No, of course not. I look at this frightened, tired creature before me, this mass-murdering parasite, and I flip the switch that opens the airlock. I blast off from Ekrak's world with a cargo of jewels, spices, and perfumes, Ekrak's capital, a magnificent city called Weeming, is a place devoted to reckless hedonism. There are few laws there, but its people have little reason to commit crimes. Everything they could want is at their fingertips. The devourer could be safe in such a city. Drug overdoses are common and are never investigated. Nobody would notice a mysterious death every few months. But she comes back to the ship on the morning of blastoff in the body of a retired dancer. We fizzle noisily through the atmosphere, then settle into a nice, steady burn, our engines consuming the mass of the ship until there's almost nothing left, just a splinter between your fingertips. Sometimes we are lovers, the Devourer and I, when it possesses a body of the right sex and age. At first this disturbs me, even as it thrills me. It seems too close to necrophilia. But then the devourer whispers into my ear to keep going, and it no longer matters. The anxiety eases, and I feel, somehow, absolved of my sins. At other times, we are just friends, keeping each other company out here in the almighty night, raging together against the loneliness, washing ourselves clean in a torrent of time, until we can no longer remember what we are running from. Water under the bridge.
4: There you go, don't forget, copyright is Julian's, Julian, thank you so much, and Brian, what can I say, what can I say. So before we get into our very own Amy H. Sturgis, again, another reminder, please, think about the Kickstarter, just so you can get a copy of the book, you know what I mean? We've been talking about it, you know, kind of, myself and, and Robin, banding and ideas, and think of it as like, what well, this is the way we've come up with it, it's like a generation ship. We're all there on the landing gear now. All the crews, you know, now ready, locked in, tied down, ready to go, you know, strapped in. The crew being the writers, the artists, you know, the the editors there. We're all in there, ready to go. And when this 69th hour falls away, that's blast off. And it'll take with the length of the time to put this novel, this anthology together. And that's when we'll arrive at everyone, you know, this this magical place, Worlds Without Walls. And if you believe in, you know, my values and, you know, the whole ethos of this, uh, this you know, this anthology, it's it'll be something special to have, do you know what I mean? And, you know, you get other little perks as well, you know, that kind of sign. There's a few done that, mind you. Go on there. And what was I up to on, you know... Where I had to write out the rant. I kept having to put it up now, so I've uh, I've gotta write seventeen of them. I've done five, I've wrote five, and I thought that would be it, and I thought well I'll just put it up in the chat straight away when we when we lost loads of them when we went to the Samuel R. Delaney stretch goal. So and how cool is that man, to have one of the writers out there. Do you know what I mean? Stands up for equality and diversity in just everything. To have him on, you know what I mean? Like in the oh man, pop over Kickstarter. Link on here. There'll be link anywhere you can. I've been all over. Just type in Kickstarter. Type in Starship Sova, or you know everyone Worlds Without Walls. Just type in everyone Worlds Without Walls. You'll get there. Get a pledge in. So we have our very own. Last but mine, no means least, our little aims Our little Ames. Looking back at genre history, Ames.
5: Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back on genre history. And today, I would like to first start off by recommending a collection that was published last year. It is wonderful. It is called Women of Future's Past. And it is a collection of great science fiction from classic women of science fiction. Andre Norton, and McCaffrey, Lee Brackett, Nancy Cress, Ursula K. Le Guin. You cannot go wrong with this volume. It was edited by Christine Catherine Rush, and every story in this collection is just stellar. And it's also a great one-stop shopping experience for women of 20th century science fiction and 21st century science fiction as well as some of these authors are still very much at the top of their games. So anyway, Women of Future's Past, definitely worth reading, and one of my very favorite living science fiction writers. Yes, I'm a historian, which means a lot of my favorite people are dead, but uh, I am also, of course, a fan. And one of my very favorite living science fiction authors is Lois McMaster Bujold, and she's also represented in this volume. And speaking of Bujold, she is the focus of today's segment. I'd like to talk about Bujold and her background in fan writing, uh, this is near and dear to my heart. I grew up in science fiction fandom, started reading fanzines in my teens back in the day, <laughs> before all of that stuff was online and fan fiction writers and fan artists and such were, were publishing on, you know, mimeograph machines and sending things through snail mail. And I'm very intrigued by the relationship Bujold has had, historically, with fandom. And so that is the subject of today's segment, and probably the next one as well. The comments that I'm going to make are based on research that I did for an essay of mine that was published called From Both Sides Now, Bujold and the Fan Fiction Phenomenon, which was published in the collection Lois McMaster Bujold, Essays on a Modern Master of Science Fiction and Fantasy which was edited by Janet Brennan-Croft and published by McFarland in 2013. So just FYI, if you want to track that down, there it is. But that project is the springboard for my comments today. So before she earned four Hugo Awards, three Nebula Awards, the Mythopaic Award, the Skylark Award, the Forey Award, and a number of additional honors, as well as a devoted audience of science fiction and fantasy readers, Lois McMaster-Bujold herself was a fan. And she explains in her essay, and lots of her essays, by the way, are available online at her website, so you can go read those if you like. In her essay entitled Here's Looking at You, Kid, she admitted that quote, I was a reader and fan first and a fan fiction writer pretty much simultaneously with my start at trying to write original fiction, end quote. She doesn't hide at all what she calls her fleeing with fandom. On the contrary, she credits it as a kind of apprenticeship, one that not only encouraged her growth as a writer and and nurtured her, her budding work, but also prepared for her to relate to fan readers once her professional fiction became popular. So today she is a self-proclaimed fan-friendly author, and she's used the insights she's gained from fan fiction to develop strong ties to the community of her fans and to wrestle in particular with the question of sex and readership in fiction. And perhaps most importantly, to articulate her theory of the unsung collaborator. And that has been credited with reinventing the reader response theory of literature. And I'll talk about that later. Both Bujold and her childhood friend, Lillian Stewart Carl, who also grew up to become a professional fiction writer, have recounted in a number of essays and interviews Bujold's youthful experience as a fan Beyond Here's Looking at You, Kid, that particular essay, some of the most insightful of these discussions include her answers, uh, Carl's Through Darkest Adolescence with Lois McMaster-Bujold, or Thank You, But I Already Have a Life, and Carl's Interview, A Conversation with Lois McMaster-Bujold. So it's from these accounts and other ones that you can kind of reconstruct a portrait of... The young science fiction fantasy mystery fan, who was Lois McMaster-Bujold, as she gravitated to the works of Robert Heinlein, Paul Anderson, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Arthur Conan Doyle, and television shows like The Twilight Zone, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., and the original Star Trek. She also was... Plugged into the larger science fiction community, she subscribed to Analog, and became an active member of the Central Ohio Science Fiction Society, and she attended genre conventions. Her transition from being a consumer of genre texts to an active transformer of them in participatory fandom is the kind of journey that scholars of fan culture and transformative media have been paying attention to. Henry Jenkins, Camille Bacon-Smith, Joe Marie Verba, Constance Pinley, Cheryl Harris, Alison Alexander, Matt Hills, and yours truly. Now, you could argue that fan fiction is a very, very old form of Fan participation of, of participatory culture. The medieval authors who embellished and explored and retold pre-existing Arthurian legends were fan fiction producers. But in the contemporary sense, the way I'm talking about it now, fan fiction can be dated to the publication of the first Star Trek fanzine, Spochanalia, a play on Bacchanalia, in 1967. And that publication in particular, inspired Bujold to write fan fiction and co-produce a Star Trek zine of her own, Stardate. When looking back at the experience of Stardate, she's quick to point out that creating the fan publication served as a training experience for future professionals. Of the other fans besides Bujold, who contributed fiction and art, to the scene, two became writers and another became an artist by trade. In, in retrospect, she says, quote, it's interesting to see all of us baby artists getting our first fling there, end quote. But it's not the first time that her fan appreciation for texts had led her to write. By the age of 15, she had read both The Lord of the Rings and The Fairy Queen twice and And then felt moved to try fantasy of her own. And so she started a project, which she never completed. She's called it a Tolkien-esque epic with the dubious distinction of having been written in Spenserian verse. Pretty ambitious for a 15-year-old. Stardate wasn't Bujold's final foray into fan fiction either. When she was in college, she wrote a tribute to Arthur Conan Doyle's great detective, her very own Sherlock Holmes pastiche. It didn't launch her career in Holmesian writing, but it did mark the first incarnation of a gutsy heroine named Cordelia Naismith, who would later become reborn as Cordelia Naismith Vorkozigan in her highly successful Vorkozigan series. The Adventure of the Lady on the Embankment finally saw print, uh, minus its now missing final pages, in the 1996 collection Dreamweaver's Dilemma, a collection of short stories and essays. Now, the fact that Bujold is is candid about her early participation in fandom and even allowed her home story to be published in a collection alongside professional stories long after her reputation as an award-winning author was secure— says a lot about her attitude toward the fan experience as a legitimate and much-needed training ground of sorts. Quote, "...it's very tough for an apprentice to get the kind of experience that they need to go on to grow into the full-fledged artist," she has explained. In her work Answers, she credits fanzine projects such as Stardate with serving as a nursery for baby writers, including herself. So if her fan fiction experience was an apprenticeship for her, it's unsurprising that echoes of the texts that inspired her fanish creativity resound in her original works. As a fan, she was moved to write by works of science fiction, like the original Star Trek, fantasy, like The Lord of the Rings and The Fairy Queen, and mystery, like the Sherlock Holmes canon. Although the crossing and blending and transcending of genres is one of the trademarks of her writing, her work broadly fits into the categories of science fiction and fantasy, and they're often informed by mystery. For example, she's known perhaps foremost for her best-selling and widely translated Vorkosigan series, which started in 1986 and is ongoing more than, lots more than a dozen novels, novellas, and short stories. This saga fits squarely into the science fiction genre and subgenres of political and sociological and military science fiction, but many of its stories are framed around classic whodunit scenarios. Uh, Perhaps the best example of this is the Hugo and Nebula award-winning must-read, if you haven't read this, just stop now and go read it, uh, The Mountains of Mourning from 1989, that casts protagonist Miles Verkozigen in the role of detective, uncovering the truth behind an infanticide when the murdered baby's mother appeals to his father's court for justice. Then the rich world-building tradition of classic fantasy informs Bujold's other series like the three-novel, four-novella Chalion or Five Gods series, which started in 2001 and just got a new installment just this past week, actually. And the four-novel Sharing Knife series, which began in 2006, and uh, her standalone novel, *The Spirit Ring*, from 1993. Another object of Bujold's early fanish appreciation has also left a lasting imprint on her original writing. She's mentioned repeatedly her love for the spy-fi television series *The Man from U.N.C.L.E.*, which ran from 1964 to 1968. I'm also a big *Man from U.N.C.L.E.* fan, so that strikes a, a note for me too. It mixed high-tech, futuristic gadgetry with international power politics. So you ended up with a show that was action-packed espionage. And nearly all of her stories, even those in the decidedly pastoral Sharing Knife series, contain an element of political subterfuge in their plots – The Vorkosigan series in particular has that whole spy-fi marriage of science fictional technology and high-stakes political espionage that she encountered as a teenager while following the adventures of Napoleon Solo, as portrayed by Robert Vaughan and Ilya Kuryakin, as portrayed by David McCallum, as agents of UNCLE, the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. There's even a character in her Vorkozigan series that's a a nod to this, the character of Simon Ilyan, the slight, cool, and quietly heroic lieutenant who eventually rises to become the trusted chief of imperial security on the Vorkozigan's homeworld of Baryar the image she paints of the intelligent, aloof, uber-capable Ilyan is a clear match to that of the slight, cool, and quietly heroic agent Ilya Kiryakin in The Man from U.N.C.L.E. And she has said, uh, television produced The Man from U.N.C.L.E. and Ilya Kiryakin, an example of the sidekick being more interesting than the hero, and it's no accident that the head of imperial security on Bariyar is named Ilyan. Okay, so what's the takeaway here? One is that the genres that inspired Bujold's creativity as a fan became the genres in which she's been most productive as a writer of original fiction. There is one other point I want to make about the influence of fan fiction on her work, too, and this is a a different and, I think, fascinating one. There's another way that... Her experience as a fan has influenced her career, and she makes her debt to fan fiction explicit in her 2006 essay, Writing Sex. So in Writing Sex, she details the challenge posed by her Shearing Knife series in which the character's various sexual problems are actually central to the plot, and it brought up sex in a way that really hadn't been – Uh, front and center in her other work. So it left her with the question of how to write intimate scenes without boring readers uh, past caring or shocking them and scaring them away. Different portions of her audience reacting in different ways. And she maps her reasoning for the approach she ultimately chose. In doing that, she notes a turning point in her own life as a reader that now informs her life as a writer. She knew previously that reading written pornography was a profoundly anti-erotic experience for her and found that graphic uh, sexual scenes in some of the science fiction novels she'd read were kind of repellent and kind of a turn off. When she was loaned several fanzines by a fellow fan containing slash fan fiction, uh, she said the light dawned in more ways than one. Okay, sidebar. I'm sure many of you already know this, but slash or or homoerotic fanfiction takes its name from the manner in which writers denote a sexual pairing, right? Kirk slash Spock, for example, Kirk Spock uh, erotica. So you get the slash there. If the printed fanzine Spocknelia ushered in the modern era of fanfiction in 1967, then the modern era of slash fanfiction officially began with the publication of Diane Marchant's A Fragment Out of Time in the 1974 Star Trek fanzine Drup 3, although the contemporary slash phenomenon predates that story. Uh, there were stories that were in private circulation among fans as early as 1968. So the fan, Lois Wingmaster Bujold, gets uh, loaned some of these fanzines And she said she stayed up all night to read them. She felt a riveted interest that no other literature had had evoked in her. And so from that, she built an understanding of what traditional pornography did for some people and and in the end took away several lessons. One was the folly of assuming that one's own sexual turn-ons are equally true for the rest of humanity or more to the point, her readership. Uh, Just because the author likes it doesn't mean the readers will. Another is an appreciation of the fact that romantic and erotic aren't the same thing. And so she focused on achieving an explicit tone rather than graphic content. In short, what she was trying to do is recreate the riveted interest that this fan fiction had evoked in her. The fact that She wrote about this 20 years after reading these borrowed slash scenes, and the fact that she acknowledges the insights they gave her into her own psyche and also successful professional writing of sex scenes says a lot about the respect and seriousness with which she approaches fan writing. And here, I think, is a good place to stop for now. And when I join you again for another look back into genre history, I'd like to talk about... Bujold's theory of the unsung collaborator and how that fits into reader response theory of literature, and also talk about how there are generational differences in how professional authors view fan fiction and how Bujold's perspective really marks her as someone ahead of her time. And with that, I want to thank you for your time, and I look forward to joining you again soon for another look back into genre history. Thanks.
4: Amy. I thank you. That just Kim just dropped me that yesterday. So how efficient are we there? And I just want to, you know, Amy's. Would, I think Amy had the the flu or not man flu. Amy, you know what I mean? You, you know what I mean. When we get it, we get it, but. You know, you had a little tickly cough, I think. So I'm I'm glad you're over that, you know. It's sore throat. it's took a little strepsil or whatever, a little you know, but I'm glad you're over that. If it had been, you know, man flu. half the year gone, half the year gone, but we can just fight through that. There we go. <laughs> I just tipped over you. <laughs> Set that fuse light. <laughs> so That is today's show. Honestly, like I say, pop over to Kickstarter, it would be fantastic. You know, we've had a blast, honestly, doing this. And it was strange, because if you remember, you know, at the beginning of it, it's 30 days is a long time. And I just didn't know if I would be like, have the energy, do you know what I mean, to do all this kind of promotion, to kind of get on the kind of roller coaster, fairground ride of the Kickstarter and just, but it's been something that's, Therapy again. It's it's just been so nice to us. You know what I mean? It's just like it took my mind off the kind of the dark little corners and the dark recesses of of my life or the, the, my thoughts and stuff like that. And just it's been absolutely wonderful to kind of and you know. And I probably have. You know what I mean? I think I sent out an email and it might have getting for some reason repeated twice. I don't know how I did that to be quite honest, but it like banged in twice into people's emails you know so obviously sometimes i might have been a bit of a pest but that's the price do you know what i mean i knew that price was there and that's not gonna bother me one bit do you know? <laughs> i raised my glass to the pest society you know what i mean i'm kind of i'm a fully fledged member of that that place so i've been there all the starships over times just to get the message out, do you know what I mean? Like you say, this is a big thing for Starships so over the District of Wonders. It means we can kind of bring more, you know, I can kind of get Badger and Jeremy, I can Badger the other ones, to bring more diverse stories around, do you know what I mean? And we're in a position now which is comfortably being able to pay for them as well, do you know what I mean? That's just fantastic. This all helps. This is amazing. Please support work that would be fantastic. We have... Still, let's just refresh it. This is actually live, so it's Wednesday. What's the date today? Just checking. 8th of March. We're still on 69 hours. Way bigger. <laughs> Until next week. God, I wish that bloody bottle is full. <laughs> Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
3: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I want to talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say,